biodigital jazz, uh, man. Yeah, yeah, that one, and you're messing with my Zen thing, man. I, I like those two. You are two, but- really messing with my Zen thing. <laughs> Welcome to episode 33 of the Movie Bite Podcast. This is a weekly show where we discuss, praise, lament, or lampoon movies, TV shows, and more. Today is Wednesday, February 27th, 2013. I'm your host, TJ, and I'm joined by, I'm joined on the grid by my co-host, <laughs> Joe Darnell. Thank you, TJ. Uh, I love the grid. I've never been there before. Shots. Yeah, that was this so irritating, too. I had that all planned out, how I was going to say that, and I flubbed it up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so how are you doing? You feeling any better? Oh, yeah, a lot better than I did. Thank you for asking. Good, good, good. Mm. Uh, well, we're going to talk about uh, Tron Legacy today. I'm excited. Yes, one of my all-time favorite films. We're yeah. such nerds. <laughs> Definitely. Um, all right, so let's. Uh, why don't we dive in? You have here in the show outline, you wanted to talk about my uh, little thing on Jack the Giant, Slayer, uh, Jack the Giant Slayer being pricier yeah. than Tron to produce. Yes, and I thought that this was kind of a fun opportunity to make a tie-in here because we're going to be talking about Jack and the Giant, uh, the Giant Slayer next week. It'll be the main movie review, and I'm not looking forward to this film. I just got to be honest. But the thing, the real trick is that I've seen trailers. It it looks over the top, and I was really disappointed when I got this news that it's looking like the film had a budget, a production budget. Uh, between 185 million and 200 million. What is with that? I mean, this movie is coming out at the beginning of March, and you know, there's some people that I've heard about it, but it doesn't look like it's going to be the extravaganza of the year. And that's a lot of money. That's like that's the kind of money that outdoes even the likes of what Disney spent on Tron Legacy, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. But you imagine the kind of marketing that uh, Disney funnels into a movie like, say, Wreck-It Ralph. You want to look that up real quick? Because sure. that kind of movie is just super heavy on the uh, technology that's required to fulfill such a film. And it it has all this extra marketing budget as well. And then you compare the numbers of what you're getting out of a movie like that to a movie like Jack the Giant Slayer. And it's really it's really astounding. I just can't believe that they would spend that kind of money on this thing. Yeah, it does seem a little bit crazy. Um, I can tell you that the production budget on uh, Wreck-It Ralph was $165 million. I'm still looking for a marketing budget. Hmm. And I don't... I, I See, I I am a little bit uh, uneducated in exactly how this works. I'm, I'm in the indie film world when I make films, so I have no idea on this scale how this works. And if, if, that, if that budget is factored in like when i when i said when when we say production budget is that part of the marketing budget i don't know mm. so anyway i i'm not finding that information and if it's separate or not but the point here is 165 million uh on wreck it ralph which was a great film but you, you start spending this kind of money on jack the giant slayer i, I feel like this film should have been made for more like I don't know. I'm, I'm throwing numbers out here that I don't know anything about, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, less than a hundred million because it seems like to me, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you're not looking forward to it, Joe. I, I am. And you know, I, I think though that, that what bothers me, what worries me is oftentimes the films I enjoy the most are made on the least amount of budget. 
you know what I'm not looking forward to though next week when the film does come out and there's all these movie reviews and the reports of what it did in box office box offices um there's going to be all these you know headlines like Jack the Giant Slayer dot 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 and it's going to be some pun some some ironic way to tie yeah. in the title of the movie the, to the, how poorly it did or something it's going to be horrible the, for the a bo- week the box office was not slain you know <laughs> yeah uh, uh yeah who knows i i already actually saw some headline or other like that i can't remember because you know the earlier reviews are pouring in because it's, the thing is comes out on friday so uh, uh hmm. anyway so yeah i'm not i'm not jazzed by looking at seeing the production budget even though i'm looking forward to it because uh of brian singer and for other reasons i think the trailers actually look pretty cool so uh you know we'll see yeah Next up in the uh, what we wanted to talk about before we get to the review, um, there's a little bit of analysis about Argo and why it won Best Picture at the Oscars. And this was a uh, link on our site from the playlist. One could suggest that we and other pundits have exhausted the conversation about the 85th Academy Awards, and we <laughs> might not argue with that, they say. But while we've already had plenty of opportunities to examine the surprises, the snubs, the show itself both its best and worst moments and how it can improve, we personally haven't looked closely at why the outcomes landed where they did. And so this particular article on the playlist examines why Argo got best picture. I find it pretty cool that the film I thought was most notable, to be honest, got best picture. Remember it was, I don't remember how many episodes ago it was now, but it was back when the Oscar nominations were first made, you and I and somebody else on the show with us were talking about those nominations and what we would like to see. And I think I mentioned then that Argo all in all was my choice. Uh, I'm just kind of surprised that my choice was chosen. <laughs> but, you know, the reason being, I mean, what kind of year did we have? It's not like it was a big year for Cohen brother films and, you know, no, I mean, I, I was happy with many of the films last year, but um, yeah, happy, it, but it was hard to come by a five for five star rating film. That's true. I mean, even my even my two favorites uh, probably would be, you know, oh, man, it's so hard to do to pick two favorites. It was hard enough to compile my top ten. But but you're right. I don't think any of them were five star films in my book. Uh, like Wreck-It Ralph, I think only got four stars from me, even though I liked it. And and the Avengers, which I love dearly, only I did. I probably rated it four and a half if I'm remembering right. So, um, yeah, uh, it was an interesting year and I wouldn't say it was a lot of people said it was a bad year. I wouldn't say it was a bad year, but it was an interesting year. So, yeah. So it's not like I'm saying, you know, I would slight Argo. In fact, I really enjoyed it. I'm just saying that it doesn't deserve five stars. You know what I mean? So I think that that's one of the peculiarities and why this article actually probably has something going for it in their logic. And, um, so check that article out. Right. Well, I think what they're saying kind of goes along with what we're saying, which is that uh, Argo got Best Picture, but Ben Affleck didn't get Best Director, which which indicates I think they were saying a confused uh, kind of a I think they use the word confused um, uh, electors or it's not electors, but you know the the vote casters, judges, yeah, judges, yeah, or what? Well, they're all voting, but that there was a little bit of a confusion amongst the ranks uh, in these categories, like they didn't agree. And they, you know, good years. I think they were the analysis is saying is that these categories tended to agree with one another. So, right. 
that that's that's where I think it's it's an interest. It was definitely an interesting year. So yeah, and, and I recommend the article. I'm I'm putting the link to the uh, to our piece on it in the show notes, and I recommend clicking through the playlist and reading that article because it's you know it's a good read. I don't agree with all the conclusions that they drew, but it's definitely a good read. So. And uh, for the record, just in case anybody's wondering, the Best Director Award was given to Ang Lee for Life of Pi, which also won some award for its special effects. Um, and I kind of understand why. Again, that's actually a pretty interesting choice. Uh, so I would like to read somebody's analysis about Life of Pi because that that film too is a peculiar one i i would agree it doesn't deserve something like best picture but i think it could deserve that for the the best director i might have nominated it for the same thing if i had had a judge vote a judge's a judge's vote to fill so yeah well and while since we're talking about the uh academy awards or i think they officially changed the name to the oscars but whatever um yeah. might as well mention too that the best actor uh went to daniel day lewis for lincoln which uh was well deserved did we mention this at all in the last podcast? I don't remember. We really didn't talk about the Oscars. Okay. Uh, so Daniel Day-Lewis um, uh, was the best actor, and uh, best actress went to Jennifer Lawrence uh, for her role in uh, Silver Linings Playbook. And so. I think she totally deserved it. She was pretty cool. She's I like Jen Law. She's good. Yeah, she's a pretty good actress. So mm. uh, I'll put the link to this also in the show notes uh, detailing the goings-on of the winners and stuff. So, what else have we got, Joe? Well, six strikes for the ISP policy. Um, you oh yeah, that's my link. What this is all about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my link. Okay. Um, so the this has been ongoing for a while. The uh, the, the ISPs, uh, internet service providers, and the um, uh, the the content owners have been trying to come to an agreement to where if they detect or not even no detect is the wrong word. If you are accused as a internet user. If you uh, they det- they want to accuse your network of traffic of traffic that involves piracy, then um, uh, then then they have implemented what's called a six strike system. You get a warning via email uh, for the first, I think, two. The, the third offense, you get uh, like your network will not allow you to browse the internet until you've clicked the box that says "I understand, I will no longer pirate." And once you get six of these, uh, the different ISPs have different ways of like of handling that. Like some will throttle your internet speed down to dial-up speed. Uh, oh my! Yeah, and 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 my problem with this is twofold. First of all, this is a a system based on allegation. If an allegation is made against you, and it costs the content owners nothing to make the allegation, mm-hmm. they make an allegation against you and your internet network that you're using. Uh, then you're issued a warning. This is not a. Uh, this is not like if the, we've confirmed that you're pirating. So th- there's no kind of. Uh, you know, we're we're not operating within some sort of law system here. But if you want to use that as an example, well, there, no, it, it, it's devoid. It's devoid of some sort of like just weights and balances. Exactly. Is what you're saying. Exactly. And so, but if you so it costs them no money to file an allegation, and then you get a warning, which counts as a strike. But if you want to dispute the allegation. If you want to dispute, dispute the claim, that costs you money. You have to pay $35 just to get the dispute registered, and who knows where it goes from there. It's yeah. a crazy, crazy thing. And, my, and the, my second problem with this is stop spending all this cash on ineffective prevention. You're not going to stop the pirates. You just aren't. It's not going to happen. So long as these 
as, as, as movies, as an instance, and music exist as digital bits, they're going to be pirated by pirates. You won't stop the pirates. It's not going to happen. Stop spending cash on this. You're, it's, it's ineffective. It, you, you know, you're, you're, these, these companies are spending this massive amount of money for such little return. And instead, <laughs> yeah. they could be using that money to please the customer, to produce pleasing content, and to, and to make it so, okay, Joe, when, you, when there's a product that you really like, you're inclined to go buy it, right? Like, mm-hmm. for instance, I'm just going to use TweetBot. You and I both use TweetBot on the Mac and on our iPhones. We, I, I don't know about you. I love TweetBot for Twitter. I wouldn't use anything else, and I wouldn't pirate the app because I love the app. I want to pay for it and support it. And I feel like the content per, uh, makers of movies and TV shows should be focusing on the same thing. They should make you want to buy the content. Then that will discourage piracy because you'll want to support it. Yes, Steve Jobs actually on that note made the point when he started iTunes that they wanted to produce a store where it was very friendly and easy to use, so much so that people would be discouraged to use piracy. Because no matter how free piracy can be, it would still be less convenient than to just shop on the iTunes store. Right, well, that's where I'm at. Piracy. How do I say this? They made the point that the reason... I'm not not a pirate, but I have... have gone through the steps to see what was involved. And I've, I know how to use a BitTorrent client. But, you know, frankly, iTunes is a lot easier. I'd rather spend the money. Which, yeah. bring, I'm sorry to interrupt you. That was just right there. I had to get it out. So yeah, go ahead. I understand. Yeah, I'm with you. And so what iTunes has proven is that if you give people the option of getting your media there, then more often than not, they start making money again. Right? Can you imagine the world without iTunes now? If we were still restricted to things like um, exclusively Netflix running in a browser and purchasing DVDs and Blu-rays through Amazon. I mean, the times are changing, right? And it doesn't seem like the media companies, like you said, you mentioned earlier that you'd rather see them produce better content with that money than fight piracy. What I would like to see them do is take the proactive stance like Apple did with iTunes. Apple doesn't do much to fight criminals that are stealing their products rather like your dressing is better that they just produce really great products that are so great. What you'd rather do is just buy them outright. And it would be mighty nice if some of these studios would spend money on producing better means of getting and digesting their media. Right. Yeah. Speaking of Apple, it's kind of like OS 10, which is for those of you who may not use Apple computers like we do. OS 10 is the operating system kind of like windows is. And, OS 10 is so easy to pirate. You, I mean, it would be because there's no protection at all. You can take it and install it on any Mac, that even if it's not the operating system that you bought. If it's a newer one and you didn't buy it, you could do that. But you know what? I, I don't know anybody. I know lots of Mac-using people who don't do that because they love OS 10. They want to pay for it and support the development of it. And that's that's what I feel like these content companies need to be working towards. Right. And and, so, and, yeah. and you, you reminded me of another thing, just kind of a split off from that, where iTunes makes it so easy. And it's why I use iTunes is because it's so easy. And, and Netflix, for that matter, too, because I have an Apple TV. It's so easy to use. That's why I use it. And I feel like these content companies are locking their content down instead of opening it up and making it easy yeah. to not pirate. They're making it easy to pirate. Right. So Exactly. That is the problem, TJ. Preach it, brother. So there you go. That That's why I posted this. This is so irritating to me. The link will be in the show notes at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 33. Mm. So let it be.
All right. Now you want to talk about the prequels. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know why I hadn't thought of this angle before. I don't think I've thought of this before. I hadn't mentioned it. I hadn't heard anybody else mention it. And so I just want to... Get out of town. Yeah. I just wanted to think about it real quick. You know what? Now that Disney... And, and there's lots of barriers to entry on this, and it'll never happen. But what Disney should think about doing now that they own Star Wars is they should think about remaking the prequels properly. That's what this article <laughs> yeah. that I linked to is talking about. And there's a lot of, like, George Lucas is still alive, and he still has some controlling interest or whatever, somehow or some way, maybe. And, and you know, Fox owns the rights to the films, and blah, blah, blah. It'll never happen. But it's fun to think about. Like, please, yeah. please, what what do we have to do to get this done? Do we need to start a Kickstarter? What do we got to do? Let's, <laughs> Kickstarter. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> Disney, we will give you $500 million. Just redo episodes one, two, and three, please. And get proper screenwriters, good actors. <laughs> The only actor I would... I don't know. You may not be able to pay J.J. Abrams enough to touch the prequels. <laughs> so Yeah, the only actor I would be interested in seeing come back is Ewan McGregor. That's it. Uh, the rest of the act... Well, I don't know. I, I have high respect for... Uh, what's the actress that played Padme? Um, her name is... Yeah, Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman. I, I have respect for her as an actress. I think she was poorly directed in these films. Yes, she's hit or miss, but she is a decent actress, and so, you're right, she could do but, better. But the only one I really care, like, if, if if this were to ever happen, and it's not, trust me, it's not going to happen, but if it were to ever happen, <laughs> I'd be okay with Ian McGregor coming back. That's about it. You know it. what? All things considered, to be honest, I understand the sentiment, but yeah, you know, it's it's sort of a sky in the pie dream, you know, or what, no, pie in the sky <laughs> dream, and I don't really think I care. Like, the, the, prequel, the prequels have been there, they're done, they're done deal, I don't feel like it needs to be remade because ultimately, what are you going to do? It's like, let's remake a wet paper bag because the first time around <laughs> it got wet and it was, it is terrible. So let's make a better wet paper bag. So you don't think that can be done is what you're saying. I, I think it cannot be done considering that they are prequels and we already know so much about the story that it'd be very difficult to make the films compelling again because they're a beaten dead horse story. We did, that, that path has been trod. Okay, well, I, I, I can respect that viewpoint. And, and frankly, I, I do wish, for the most part, that the, the prequels had never been made. I, you know, so I understand that. And Amen at the same time, at the same time, they're already out there. Let's let's pretend like they don't exist and remake them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody on YouTube, please get on this. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there you go. We should get the fans to just remake it. <laughs> That's right. Kickstarter campaign for a YouTube remake. <sighs> with legos <laughs> uh, i don't know if we mentioned it on this podcast i mentioned it on the wrap uh and i posted the link to it uh and i know i shared it with you where uh, the lego jar jar stop animation kind of getting shot <laughs> yeah yeah it's good stuff uh all right well there you go you were i understand your viewpoint and at the same time i kind of wish that we could remake them so that we would when we when we sit down to watch all six films, uh, which we try not to do, <laughs> yeah. we wouldn't have to suffer through the awfulness of the of especially uh, that first prequel. And we will never know how many people needed a hospitalization just because of those dang prequels. Man. <sighs> anyway, hey, you want to talk about something you like? I do. All right. Well, then I am so ready to move on to the review for today. All right. Because I think that it's high time that we clear the air of. Prequels. All right, so what what are we reviewing? Which which podcast is this? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
This is the Tron Legacy podcast. Which, which one are you? No, sorry, I'm borrowing from Merlin Man here. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, okay, so Tron Legacy. What do we have to say about Tron Legacy? It's a good film. Go watch it at the end. Goodbye. Awesome. <laughs> well, that's how people will say yes, and that review sums up a uh, you know or parallels the movie quite nicely. Um, you can just add some whiz bang sound effects to go along with what we say here at the end, and we'll be done. Yeah, no, see, and it's interesting. Tron Legacy has not often, let's see, it hasn't always received favorable reviews. Like, there's kind of a mixed bag out there in terms of reviews, although it's, uh, it, the, the, uh, well, the critics are pretty much split down the middle. Uh, the audience liked it a little better. Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes gives it a uh, 51 percentile from the critics and a 67 from audiences, and IMDb gives it a 6.9 out of 10 stars. So, yeah, it doesn't do too favorably with either groups, and I understand that to an extent, and I don't hold it against them. But I, I wonder just, I wonder how much of that, though, and I think we have to talk about this a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. I wonder how much of this is related to the first film, and the feeling, I, I mean, I even feel this a little bit, I, I mentioned to you in a chat right after I watched the the film. This is such a great film. It's too bad it's tied down by the baggage of the first film. Ah, like people could never get over the original one, so how could they open but, up their hearts to Tron Legacy? But, and I need to look it up on Rotten Tomatoes here uh, while I'm doing that. Um, y- You know, I, I hate to keep going back to Ebert, and I know you said, let's not mention him in this podcast, but he did review both films, and he rated the stinking first film, which I hated, all the way a f- full four stars, and he's only got a four-star system. So, yeah. it, it's, it's frustrating. It, that is weird, isn't it? You know, oh, well, you know, my dad, too, he liked the original one back in the day. When I was a kid, it was um, some of my earliest memories about movies and my dad. You know, Tron was something that he had brought up and it was something that he liked, right? And by the mid-90s, by the time we had computer animated films and movies like Jurassic Park with lifelike Tyrannosaurus Rex, things like Tron looked terrible looked super cheap looked just super dated and i think that people got over the craze because they realized you know what tron may have worked in the spirit of the moment but not much more and i think it it boils down to the fact that ah uh, it, it's weird right people like ebert wanted to give it high acclaim for its visual effects and people like ebert as well also noted there's not much really going for it in terms of substance in the original Tron film circa 1982 and uh, late uh, 1981. Um, Rotten Tomatoes. I noted this earlier, TJ, and I think that this is still very interesting. I'm talking about it in my written review as well, that uh, the, the general acclaim assessment that Rotten Tomatoes delivers on each film that they have in a profile is remarkably similar for Tron Legacy and the original Tron film. And I find that very puzzling because... Without much analysis, these films are particularly different from each other. But I can understand that it, it, there there's a big difference between them. But there's a, there's a fine line where it'd be easy to overlook it. So this is what it says about Tron Legacy on Rotten Tomatoes. It says Tron Legacy boasts dazzling visuals, but its human characters and story get lost amidst a state of the art production design. And then for the original Tron. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes says, though perhaps not as strong dramatically as it is in its technology. uh, No, no, no. Though perhaps not as strong dramatically as it is technologically, 
Tron is an original and visually stunning piece of science fiction that represents a landmark work in the history of computer animation. And so they're basically saying the same thing about these two very different films. And uh, it really irks me because Tron is by no means able to live uh, to overcome its era. But Not I think at all. Tron, I think Tron Legacy is so well designed that 20 years from now, people will still look at it and say, yes, it seems like it's beholden to 2010, but it's it transcends its time the visuals the art form the style yeah it well, is okay. so sophisticated this, this, this statement the the general acclaim that you read for tron legacy bugs me to no end both dazzling visuals but its human characters and story get lost as opposed to the first one what i thought it was just the opposite i thought that this focused much more on characters and story and much less on the on the uh, sure there was dazzling visuals but it focused much less on the mechanics of computers in 2010 unlike tron which focused on the mechanics of computers in 1982 it just and it just doesn't hold up well well you know the reality of it tj was that when the movie came out it was prepped for 3d it was filmed in 3d and uh, general audiences were probably watching it in IMAX on the big screen in 3D with those glasses back in 2010 that were still tinting the picture. And because so much of the movie is in the dark at night, and because your glasses tinted to make it even darker, it probably ruined it for everybody. I think that the movies... Uh, <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. Because the thing is, I, 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 dude, I've talked to a lot of people and they all say the same thing. One, that the 3D in this film does nothing for them. And two, that the whole movie is way too dark, and it actually inspires boredom and fatigue. And like everybody who watches this movie besides me, including fans of Tron in general, have noted, yeah, this movie can actually put them to sleep. And that's really strange to me because I find it to be so extraordinarily well done that I can get over the fact that it's a bunch of night shots. I, I mean, the yeah. story's there. The story's there. I mean, space is pretty dark, too. Yeah, but, do you, you know, I can't actually I, think of I any I cannot say that that, that even entered space, my mind. But. You know? I just, yeah. That just did not enter my mind at all. Okay, so the original Tron, real quick. I did watch that first before watching Tron Legacy because, oh. you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to get the full, you know, get the backstory and then get the real story. Let's and, get the whole gamut. Yeah, the... the what struck me again, like it did the first time, was just how terrible, terrible the music is for the film. So uh, steeped in the 1980s. Again, this kind of goes back to what we're talking about with Back to the Future, which back, I feel like Back to the Future transcended that. Even though it had some pop music, it worked and was appropriate, and then there was music that transcended that, that Alan Silvestri was able to bring in. Yeah, yeah. And Tron, the original Tron did not do that. The, all the music was terrible. None of it worked well. None of it captured mood properly. None of it was theatrical. Um, cinematography felt that too. Oh, the cinematography was terrible in Tron as well. Absolutely. And, and some of that, you know, is them trying to make a movie that they weren't equipped to make with the technology of that day. Yes. Um, and it just, you know, I feel very strongly if you can't make a movie and make it work well, then don't make it. And that's how I feel about the original Tron. Um, you know, it was a great experiment. Their concepts of computers at the time. I think there was a lot of fear of computers at that time. What's really going on in there? People, so many. I mean, there's still people who don't understand computers. There's still a lot of people who don't. But I think there's a much 
greater general understanding of computers now than there was then. And there was this worry about artificial intelligence taking over the world. Well, don't even, they didn't even know what artificial intelligence was or what it did. And, and so, you, you, boy, you, you've got, and, and, uh, I can't even, don't even get me started on, I, okay, yes, the CGI was groundbreaking for 1982. Of course it was. But, it looks terrible. It just looks absolutely terrible. And not only that, they spend time on shots, on CG shots that are supposed to be hashing out the plot. And you're waiting for this hairpin turn yes, in, the, in, yeah. in, in the in the light cycles, clunky. and it's just clunky. It just doesn't work. It's like it, it feels like you're watching the uh, what do they call that? They call it the storyboard. Right. It's like, you feel right. like you're watching the animated storyboard. At Absolutely. Times. And and you're sitting there waiting for this hairpin turn of this light cycle supposed to be making and it boxily makes its way around the hairpin turn. And you're like, this this movie would have been better served by a close up shot of the driver's face, you know, making some sort of gesture or contortion or something or showing the emotion of the moment, and they don't do that. They just sit and they on this wide shot of this computer graphic that doesn't work well. So I'm not gonna mm-hmm. belabor this movie too much, but the point yeah. is here that it's a wonder that Tron Legacy even got made to me, and yet, and yeah. it's a wonder to me that Tron is rated as highly as it is. On Rotten Tomatoes, the critics are giving it a 70% rating. And yeah. as I mentioned, Ebert rated it really highly. Uh, just the costumes alone. I mean, it, they are like the polar opposite of whatever cool is. If there is like <laughs> a pole for the standard of what cool is... You have the Matrix on the one hand, and you have the original Tron costumes on the opposite. Complete opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. It's they so were hard terrible. to get past them. It's bad and, enough that they have to be throwing around a bunch of Frisbees. And, you know, then there's David Warner. Like, he's, he's such a mixed bag. I've seen him, and, and, and for instance, in Star Trek VI, he does a great job in that film. But in, this, in Tron, he's terrible. Overacted, overdone, just, ugh, ugh. <laughs> terrible terrible yeah yeah when did you watch the film you just watched it a week ago or so yeah a couple a few days ago was uh, it the first we'll time see, you know what it? i'm using i'm using letterboxd now uh letterboxd.com slash tj draper if you want to follow me there uh and i i logged it let me see when that was was it Come the on. first time you saw it oh no i'd seen it once before uh oh, okay. did you watch it with anybody my, uh, my wife was in and out she's like oh you're watching tron well i'll sit here and eat popcorn and then i'll <laughs> then yeah. I'll probably leave. Oh come on! I'm, I'm still learning how to uh, how to work letterboxed. Okay, mm. diary. Tron. Uh, rewatched. They are the not 20, a sponsor the, of the show, but if they want to, they know where to reach yeah, us. Absolutely. Uh, tr- uh, February the twenty third, and I rated it two stars, and I did not like it. Two stars out of five. Uh huh. Okay. See, that's even more generous than I would be. Oh really? Okay. Oh yeah. Well, the original I, Tron. It just yeah. The only thing it had going for it was that they tried real hard, and I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I mean, you know what's funny, too, is um, this kind of ties into George Lucas, because it was his production studio that was working on the visual effects then. And John Lasseter, back in the day, was one of the guys that was um, pushing for it the most strongly. And the production company that eventually became Pixar all started with that movie. Tron. The trick was that John Lasseter was trying to get um, major live-action studios to take animated CG stuff seriously, and it just wasn't paying off. And so Disney was in the right place at the right time, and with the right relationship with Lucas, that with the right people like Lasseter around, 
this thing happened. You end up with Tron, which felt like it came from nowhere. And uh, yeah, and, and yeah. I, I do have to say, as hard as I'm being on Tron, the original Tron, I do have to say that I do feel like it probably kickstarted the the film industry as it exists today with the CGI and stuff. In many yeah. ways, it was a predecessor, and and so that that's probably why I don't rate it as low, any lower than two stars. Like, um, because in in some ways, I suppose it was a necessary film. Like, you got to work out the yes. pain. It is a necessary evil because without Tron, there would be no Tron Legacy. Well, there's that too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Tron Legacy. We, we've talked about Tron enough. It's not a right. great, it's not a great film. If yes, you know. That's Move just <laughs> sad backstory. Now, that was the fall. Now, this is post-fall. Um, Tron Legacy is an American science fiction film released by Walt Disney Pictures. A sequel to the 1982 science fiction film Tron, it was produced by the director of the first film, Steven Lisberg. Lisberg? Lisberg. The cast includes Tron veterans, Jeff Bridges, ah, and Bruce Boxleiter. Boxleitner. Yes, the guy who played Tron. And they reprised their roles, Kevin Flynn and Alan Bradley. And, you know, I think that that was one of the other clevernesses is that even though there's not much to be said for the original Tron, I'm very appreciative that some things about the original film could be redeemed. You know, back in the day, Jeff Bridges was nobody in 1981. That guy was getting out. It just started with his career. He was a punk he was, <laughs> I, I'm not kidding, I actually read up some on his biography, and he's a fascinating guy. Back in the day, he was just glad if he could get a job in a toothpaste tube commercial. Sure. And he was, um, you know, for fun and to try and garner attention from potential agents in Hollywood, he and his brother would stage a fight in public, pretend to cause an argument, and start really physically duking it out with each other just to see if they could trick people into believing they were really fighting. Well, that's dumb. Yeah, and that, well, that, okay, look, look, you know, th- that's where you get Jeff Bridges. He was one of those guys. And that's the kind of guy he is, you know? Yeah, you know, he, he's, uh, he's only gotten sweeter as the years have gone by and the great Harris come in. I love that guy. He's, yeah, he's now, just wonderful. Jeff Bridges was actually in a film that I like, Iron Man, and I, I, I don't even know if I realized it. I'm sure I... Nah, was, he was so innocuous to the movie. Right. You, you don't even think about it being Jeff Bridges. Right, well, and he was bald and stuff. I mean, it's just oh, weird, and, right? And, dude, the, you cannot mention Jeff Bridges without talking about Rooster Cogburn. True Grit. TJ. <laughs> Cohen Brothers. Sorry, I'm not a big Cohen Brothers fan. No. <laughs> oh, some part of me died, and it was big, and it was painful. And I enjoy, uh, I enjoyed it too. <laughs> <sighs> Je- okay, Jeff Bridges. <laughs> okay, um, so uh, I've often wondered how in the world, after Tron, did a, a sequel arise from that? I mean, I, and I suppose the answer, of course, is because it has a, it actually gets rated decently by critics and stuff which is just beyond me but i yes. how, how do you follow up on the 1982 tron with a sequel in 2010 <laughs> so interest in creating a sequel for tron arose after the film ga- garnered a cult following after much speculation a concerted effort to devise tron legacy began in 2005 when producers hired a team of writers joseph kaczynski was recruited for, di- for the directing role two years after writing began. Since he d- was not optimistic about Walt Disney Studios' Matrix-like style of the Tron digital world, he opted for a loan, which he used to cultivate a prototype and conceptualize the universe of Tron Legacy. 
Principal photography took place in Vancouver over 67 days in and around the city's central business district. The majority of the film sequences were shot in 3D, and 10 companies were involved with the extensive visual effects work. Oh, and I love this. The film score was composed by French duo Daft Punk. Yes. Uh, and, and I don't like their music, but I like this music. Who yeah. inco- incorporated or- orchestral sounds to their electronic music, led by composer genius Hans Zimmer. Uh, together, they created one of the most broadly acclaimed soundtracks of the decade, and it is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And that's one of the things that was such a complete turnaround from the first film, where the first film, the music stank. <laughs> and this film, from from from... From the opening to the very end, all the music felt completely appropriate and worked yes. very well all the way throughout the film. And, and not only that, it even sounds good. And that's what, that's one of those crazy things, right? You know, the music in The Hobbit all sounds good, but it doesn't always work for the film. And sometimes oh, sure. when right. it's not working for the film, it sounds good and on its own or whatever. But the point is, is that this was one of those awesome, just uh, the perfect storm moments when you have a, a soundtrack that works completely independently on its own, and then it also works just wonders for its film. Yeah, like, okay, do you ever do this, Joe? I know you listen to soundtrack like I do a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and, and but, but sometimes if you've been listening to soundtrack too much, it, it takes you out of the movie because you've been listening to it on its own, and then you go watch the movie again, and it feels disconnected, right? Have it you does, ever, yeah. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's like I did it's not like a, a weird sort of deja vu right. in both ways. And and you get things mixed up in your mind uh, about what's what's going on in your mind and what you're seeing in your head when you hear the music standalone and then you go watch the film again and it's all disconnected. I didn't experience that with Tron even though I listen to the soundtrack all the time. Like I'll be I'll be, you know, rocking away writing code and I'll have Tron Legacy soundtrack playing while yeah. I'm writing code. And even so, the music all fit so well in the film and felt so completely appropriate to every part. I was surprised because I was expecting the disconnected experience. I've learned to expect it. Yeah. So my only disappointment with the soundtrack is that the rest of the Daft Punk music isn't on par. No, it's horrible. Well, and and you know what it is. You've got Hans Zimmer in there uh, doing the orchestral parts to work along with Daft Punk's music. Right. And the, or that's what makes it. I mean, I love orchestral music. Uh, I love film score and, uh, this is such a great marrying together of the electronic th- sound that you would expect from a film like Tron, which was so completely missing in the first film, and and the cinematic feel and sound. Um, so yeah, uh, there you go. Love that music. If you don't, uh, shame on you if you do not have the soundtrack. Go and buy it right away. Thank you. Drop yeah, we, drop we, what we, you're we... doing. Go get it. Yeah. And uh, nobody is sponsoring us for that either. <laughs> Just so the movie came out December 17th, to ten, uh, 17th 2010. Uh, ah, man, tongue-tied. What is wrong with you, man? Uh, I had a, a few to me. Want to try that again? Whiskey, thank you. <laughs> yeah, December 17th, 2010. And it was available in theaters for 119 days. I think that we should start noting that information because I would like to see some major that, discrepancies and differences there. That sounds like a long run, so and it's, it's done well. Seventeen weeks, yeah, yeah. That's now that's that too, TJ. That is one of the other peculiarities about Tron Legacy because it had a budget of one hundred and seventy million, and domestically it only made one hundred and seventy-two million. But worldwide, it has done four hundred million and sixty-two thousand. So that is a pretty, pretty penny, and that is why this film is getting a sequel. Oh, have, you, have they confirmed it? 
Um, you know what? We need to, we do need to confirm it and we'll probably need to uh, pin that somehow to this show. But I, I, and the only reason I say that is because, and now I'm, I'm beginning to second guess myself because I'm 95% sure I heard that there was a green light on the, on the, uh, sequel. And it was about maybe six weeks ago that they okay. made that green light. I'm Googling like mad right now. Yeah. It's not like they have a director in a, you know, screenplay already available but so a little bit about the story the story follows uh kevin flynn's son sam played by garrett hendland who responds to a message from his long-lost father and is transported into a virtual reality called the grid where sam his father and the program named cora played by olivia wilde attempt desperately to stop the malevolent program named clue also played by Sam Flynn, I'm sorry, Kevin Flynn, a.k.a. <laughs> Jeff Bridges, a.k.a. a recreation of him in a digital form. Uh, and so that, that's one of the other things we have got to talk about. You just want to go ahead and dive headlong into some let's, of the likes. Let's do it. Let's, yeah, let's do it. Um, okay, so here's the peculiarity, right? Jeff Bridges plays two roles, and one of them is played in a way that has never been done before, TJ. He plays the good guy and the bad guy, the bad guy being a 30-something-year-old version of himself as a program named Clue. Now, everybody probably already knows this by now, and whether you paid attention to it or not when you saw the movie in theaters two years ago or not, you know, Clue was a digital being, up on screen. He was completely animated. He was, um, what do you call it, motion tracked um, with the movements of Jeff Bridges. Are you Bridges. sure he was completely animated? My understanding was that they digitally enhanced Jeff Bridges, that it was Jeff Bridges, but they used CGI around him. I didn't know that the, the whole character was animated. He, no, he, let me clarify. Um, he was motion captured. Jeff Bridges and another guy were motion captured. Uh, first, Jeff would perform a scene, and, you know, the guy looks like he's 60, right? So there was no way around it. They had to completely replace him with a digital double or a body double. So the body double gets up on the screen or in front of the camera and parodies what uh, Jeff Bridges did. And the body double represents everything that is Clue from the neck down. And then from the neck up, what they did is the animators had a way of motion tracking Jeff Bridges' performance and applying the motion to a CG model of a 30-some-year-old version of Jeff Bridges. Well, that, then they did a better job than I even thought, because I thought that what they had done was to just, that Jeff Bridges did the part, but then they, of course, went in digitally and made his face look younger and stuff. I'm, I'm trying to pull up an article here to confirm what you're saying, but I'm, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. Um, and so the thing is, it's just... It's fascinating. This tech kind of technology had never been used before in a live-action film to this extent. Um, Jeff Bridges um, had many days during the production where his face was scanned, his head sculpture in every little way, how his hair grows, um, you know. And then from there, um, computer animators uh, who are responsible for sculpting brand-new characters referenced tons of footage of Jeff Bridges from movies circa the late 80s. And what they did is they found these performances of Jeff Bridges approximately at the age that he needed to be as the character of Clue, and they digitally created this version of a young Jeff Bridges. 
Yeah, well, and we even see uh, we even see him as that same age in the real world, and that's where you wonder: Did your mind play tricks on you? You know they're in the computer, and so you forgive anything that looks digital about Jeff Bridges. But no, I mean we saw him in the real world as this young guy before he he got lost in in the uh, in, in the grid. And yes. it looks fantastic. He looks like the appropriate age version of Jeff Bridges. It really does. Now, now TJ, what is what do you think in your personal opinion? Does it always work? Do, does it all? Is your suspension of disbelief great enough that you really get absorbed into the 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 moment and you can see past the fact that any of it was a digital representation of a guy? Well, like I said, I did not know? realize that he was a complete digital model with motion capture. I did not yeah. realize that at all. So yes, okay. it works well for me. Cool. Because see, the thing is, I was unfortunately a little spoiled going in to see the film the first time. I already knew. And I, I think it kind of tainted my perspective of, of Clue because I, I perceived it to be, wow, this is a really good job. But yeah, I can tell he's animated because look at there, there was a little bit of a twitch that just didn't feel right. And so, I, you know, I was, you know, it's all very subjective because most people apparently don't notice it. You're not the only one. I've I've talked to a lot of others, and it seems like most people don't even acknowledge that this is not Jeff Bridges somehow. Um, but to me, he he works about seventy percent of the time. He seems that much lifelike. I'll give him a lot of cred for the the brilliant work, but I can still tell he's digital somehow. I can't put my finger on it. And I guess I kind of like that. It means that we're that much closer to being able to do this sort of thing in much more masterful ways for future films. And I respect yeah. that. Yeah. All right. So, um, the, you know, another thing that I like about this film is I think it, you know, I said at the outset that it's it's a shame that this film has to build on the baggage of the previous film. And yes, that's true, but at the same time, they really do a masterful job. Because the, the mandate for the filmmakers was, here's Tron, make Tron Legacy, right? Build on that. Here's your framework. And they did a masterful job of taking what I feel like is a pretty poor film and saying, how do we build on this in a way that works? And how do we, how do we make this? Because... I think the indication in the previous film was yes it's fantasy but let's 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 try to make it kind of reality. This is completely fantasy and you completely buy it. Like you don't have questions about how the laser works anymore because the, for one thing they don't dwell on it and show you the mechanics of the laser zapping up the guy and and you know in the original Tron I'm sitting here going this is just so fake. And in this film it's just instantaneous, and now all of a sudden he's in the grid, and you don't spend a lot of time dwelling on it, and and it's all in the realm of fantasy, and it works, I think, incredibly well. Um, so I, I really like that about this film. I, I think that it does a good job of building on a, a, a poor foundation in a way that really works. Oh. Now, something I noticed, too, was that uh, pretty much all the movie begins and ends in the dark. The, it's only the happy ever, ever after brief moment at the end of the film when they come to daylight and that kind of puts a dampener on it. It's not a big hindrance for me. I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out there because for me, it seems unusual that so many films have about a 50, 50 ratio of daytime and nighttime, sh you know, shots. And then it seems like whatever movie wants to be especially gritty or, you know, it's a horror film or it's an art house film. There's a lot going on just in the daytime or just in the nighttime. Uh, 
Tron kind of breaks from the norm in that it's a mainstream film. It's uh, done by some real smart talents at, you know, uh, Disney. John Lasseter again came, uh, seems to be involved because some places he's credited as uh, partially a director of the film. And I think that those guys did with this film what they wanted to put in this film. There's nothing in this film that is by happenstance. They didn't say to themselves, hey, you know what? Do we need a few more programs walking around in the background there? You know, they didn't say, hey, you know, maybe this dialogue isn't working. We need to rework it for the nth time and to the point of destroying it. And at the same time, I don't think that anything in this film is there uh, prematurely before it was ready to be. I, I don't think that there was much in this film that lacks a lot of the, the filmmaker's input. They spent a lot of time on this film, and I think it shows in the details. For instance, TJ, did you know that a lot of the programs that run when they show programmers at a terminal command were actually working code in this particular film? Right, unlike the previous film. Yeah, I, I, it, I know a little bit about, uh, as, as a, you know, doing server administration and stuff, I know a little bit about Linux, and I know a little bit about, you know... Um, <laughs> Uh, command line and yeah so the codes definitely looked uh some of the stuff looked real some of it was very fake and some of it was real yes but where it mattered most to like actions that characters um commit to on screen they were actually real for instance i think the character's name was edward dillinger and he's the son of the bad guy of the first film uh-huh. he's one of the program programmers uh who's present with the board of directors at the beginning of tron legacy who is there to just make sure that make a smooth transition to uh, make available the newest version of NCOM 12, their operating system. And when Edward Dillinger frantically has to open up a terminal, you know, hit some things on the keyboard to try and salvage a situation that that's gone awry for the company, he makes a bunch of, um, you know, programmer commands. And one might think to themselves, ah, that's fascinating. And, you know, it looks like some whiz bangery going on there by in the parts of the programmer, and it's probably not real. But the filmmakers wanted a level of authenticity for most everyone in the audience, including uh, genuine programmers. So they actually got programmers to program the things that Dillinger puts into the terminal so that it was legitimate code when it mattered. And I appreciate that kind of level of commitment. And that comes full circle back around to my dislike of how many night shots there are. See, it seems oftentimes I'm disappointed in a film because the filmmakers didn't try hard enough and they didn't work out enough of the kinks. In this case, most of my dislikes, I don't think, are there by happenstance. But I think that the filmmakers were really going for something and they tried really hard and they tried to infuse it with the right qualities to make it a distinct and high quality story. And in this case, it just so happens that their story necessitated that the most of the film be you know, shot at night in night scenes. Yeah, I kind of like that myself. I kind of like it. But at the same time, part of me just gets kind of tired of it with mm. multiple viewings. You I know never I mean? got tired of it. I thought it was uh, fantastic. Good so I, yeah, I feel I, f- I just feel like it's an unusual relationship to one of my favorite films that the majority of my dislikes are just insignificant discomforts with multiple viewings, yeah. not something that got in the way the first time I saw it. Before we get too far past it, I just want to mention, did you recognize who Edward Dillinger, did you, did you recognize the actor who played Edward Dillinger? Yeah, but I forget his name. Cillian Murphy. 
Scarecrow. Yes, Scarecrow. Yeah, Scarecrow. Yeah, uh, Christopher Nolan's movies, Batman. Yes, that guy. Yes, good, great actor. Yeah, and unfortunately, he wasn't put to much good use here. But there's no, problems. I mean, it was a cameo. I mean, it was a not a cameo, but it was just a, a bit part. Bit part. Yeah, that's what I'm looking role. for. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, um, you know, I thought that. Uh, <laughs> you know, you you can uh, you can argue philosophically about this, and I, I'm you know I'm not going to get into that. I, I liked Cora as a character, and I liked the concept of of uh, you know I, I <laughs> the whole reason why Clue has gone crazy is because of her kind, right? Because mm-hmm. now he suddenly perceives a threat to his well being and his um his reason to exist, and. Uh, yeah, I I thought that that was a, a kind of a, a a fun and brilliant concept. Hmm. Uh, now now can you can you clarify a little bit there for me? What what are you pegging on? I mean, you're talking about plot stuff. Yes. Okay. Well, and and the whole the whole plot regarding Cora and and in this fantasy world, I mean, just kind of expanding on the in this fantasy world. Well, spoiler spoiler alert here. Do we really need to say that we're reviewing the film? <laughs> well, you know, one of our listeners, Jonathan, he uh, he mentioned that he wanted to see the film for the first time this week, and he didn't want to. Be oh, spoiled. right, yeah, I forgot. I saw that in the chat room, and I forgot about that. Um, okay, so we, we're definitely going into spoiler territory. So if if in this world, in this fantasy world, you can be you, the laser can beam you into the computer, into the into this digital world then it stands to reason that the computer can beam programs out into the real world. Um, so I, I just thought that the whole concept there in this fantasy world was, was pretty fantastic. Um, I don't know. You, what do you have to say about that? No, I agree. It was gorgeous. Uh, yeah, you're, and, and you're right. Most anything about Korra, I love the character. I love her background, what they introduced with the ISOs, that they are a, um, a beings unto themselves that were spontaneously created in this universe of, the, of the, the grid. You know, there's some of those things about the Matrix that everybody seems to just get. There's things about, like, the Oracle that you genuinely appreciate, but mm-hmm. they cannot be explained. And, there's th- and that's how I feel about Korra. She's that character in the programmed universe and her kind, these ISOs, as Kevin Flynn calls them, that, yes, they don't make any sense. They're spontaneous creatures coming out of, what, the ether? It doesn't make any sense. But they work in the fantasy of it all for me because it's so fantastic and it's so absurd that, yes, it could fall flat on its face, but in this film... It, it uses it very well. Unfortunately, I don't think uh, everybody seems to agree with me, and I, I think that probably the short the the reason for this is that um, while it is fascinating what the the ISOs represent in the end, Cora being an ISO doesn't have much bearing on the the whole of the plot because the villain is not really interested in destroying her, although he would like to. It doesn't seem to be something that matters to him. But that Kevin understands there's a lot of promise if Cora can get out into the real world and walk among real men in real life. And that is what's so fascinating about her. We don't get to appreciate the payoff of what Cora means for the Tron narrative and its expanded universe beyond the film until and when and if it gets its sequel um, because Korra is so unique in that she is a flawless being. She's She doesn't get disease. 
um, hypothetically speaking, she wouldn't even age. And the way she was, um, the way in which she is genetically held together in the, on the grid, she represents perfection that Kevin could have never conjured up. So what does that mean when she walks among people in the real world? She might be mortal if she's shot or ran over on the street, but does this mean that they're somehow introducing a perfect being in a flawed and fallen world with, you know, corruption and disease? How does that work? I think it's fascinating. I think that they have a lot of potential there for the growth of the story. Yeah. Hey, uh, so speaking of digital effects, we've talked a lot about – you know Kevin Flynn and how uh, Jeff Bridges was able to play both the younger version of himself and and the current version of himself. But I don't think we've talked as much about things like the light cycles and how they were. You know they took the original concept and made it look really awesome. <laughs> oh yes, um, yeah. It does not go without saying. Um, I, can you think of a movie that has effects quite like these? Where let's just be honest. There's something in every movie that you can pick apart that you notice there's some flaw to. But when it comes to the special effects in this movie, I can't, I can't say that there's anything that I I think to myself, well, that looked cheap or that looked incomplete. Well, and I think one thing that helps, this is kind of the same thing that you can say or that I say about The Matrix. And again, the concept is very similar to The Matrix, but you're in a digital environment. And so anything that looks a little bit fake your mind just bypasses it because this is this is all a digital world. In fact, some things are made to look fake on purpose. Yeah. Uh, and I think that really helps. But at the same time, still, I think that, that the digital effects, such such as the, the just the look of the trail the light cycles leave, you know, where they're trying to get people to, to blast into the trail and, and destroy their light cycles, uh, I, I just think it's fantastic. It, uh, there, there's that word. I've I realized I've used that word several times now, but it really is. <laughs> it's, it's, it is. It's amazing. I, I really love – I guess it just gets back to I really love the production design of this film. It, it's, it's, the type of, it's the type of design that I gravitate towards. Yeah, and on that note, um, Joseph Kaczynski, one of the brilliant strokes of genius that the director had, um, I think – is that in producing this film, they wanted to be sure that everything on the grid felt as though it belonged to one universe. It belonged to one operating system, to the same source code, that somehow everything related to each other and felt beholden to each other. And to ensure that that was reflected in its design and how all the material goods appeared and what the architecture looked like and how the vehicles operated and what it the gladiator games in their functions would be like they had um, all the team of the visual artists together for the production work together in one space they didn't have separate um, rooms to work in they they didn't have you know tall cubicles separating them they reinforced that they wanted all of the artists working on the visual effects and the environment of the digital universe to mold their artistry together to to the point that the director would not have any clue who did what so that he could that they could they could not identify distinct distinct different styles and approaches to how things were made in the film mm. and th- that kind of unity it really excelled in this film i think it shows yeah now you had something here in the notes um I suppose that's in the dislike category, and you have one more thing in the likes, so let's let's talk about that first. Okay. 
Which one? Ar- Are you, homages to arcade culture. Ah, yes. See now, TJ, you kind of you kind of lucked out, right? You didn't really spend much time at the arcade as a kid. Uh, I spent some time in the arcade, a little bit here and there, but not a lot. No, I, I was not an arcade okay. kid. I was an arcade kid, and let me tell you, I know I missed the golden era, but I loved it. You know, we would go over to the roller rink, I'd put on those tacky-looking orange-wheeled, you know, shoes, and we'd eat cheap hot dogs and, you know, go around the roller rink for a while, and then I'd go play in the arcades for a while. And we did that every week for summers. Ah, it was it was the best of times and some of the strangest times. But anyway... <laughs> um Yes, playing Street Fighter 2, even Donkey Kong, man. Well, see, I, I got to play Donkey Kong in an authentic arcade. I played Street Fighter 2 and Donkey Kong, but on my Nintendo. Yes. See, <laughs> I win. <laughs> okay, okay, you win. I'll give it to you, man. You win. <laughs> well, the thing, the thing is, is that, um, you know, not everybody can appreciate it, but for those people that understand the the foundation that arcade culture means to video games today... And uh, for technology, uh, for computer technology and where it has come from, you know, uh, iron sharpens iron. And in this case, it seems that the arcade was one of those things that sharpened television unwittingly. And it ultimately played a big part for the long-term success of what video games are for us today. And computer games and I think how computers work. And you know what was funny is that little things that people don't know about in the arcades and how they worked and what they did uh, for technology made a huge difference. And now, you know, we've tossed them aside. Um, Arcades are long forgotten. They're a lost art. They practically don't exist anymore. It's very difficult to find arcade units. And I I just appreciate the tip of the hat in this film, the, the nod to the quality of arcades culture and what it did for ultimately filmmaking even. Uh, It's just one of those things where I think that there's a lot going on in arcades and technology from the early 80s, late 70s, that we don't realize how much it influenced filmmaking and music and everything else. And so I appreciate a good film when it's, when not only does it hearken to something from a bygone era, but it seems to acknowledge it with pride and it, it looks on it warmly. And uh, I, I like the treatment in Tron Legacy and how it respects the arcade. All right, now we can talk about, uh, again, spoiler alert, Kevin Flynn and uh, the end that he apparently meets in this film. Now you have here, Kevin dies. Uh, did he? Are we sure? <laughs> we, we, we won't see him again. We okay, don't, yeah, another. Again, this we, is the biggest spoiler we, alert of all. I, I mentioned it, but we yeah, don't. We don't so. know that. We we don't know that he's dead. I I I, I posit. I, I say that he could come back. Okay, let's review the situation here just a little bit. You are absolutely right, TJ. Because guess what? Everybody on the grid has a backup disc. It doesn't just, you know, it's not just a, a frisbee they toss around and they wield like well, a weapon. Okay, okay, it also but, is a backup. There, there's a bigger reason than that, though. Think about the way this worked. All we saw was the reintegration that Cora said, in all likelihood, would probably kill him. We didn't see anything beyond that. We saw the reintegration happening, and that was it. Um, and, and then we see Sam Flynn 
plugging in his chip, which, by the way, is a SIM card. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that. But it's obviously supposed to be some sort of computer chip that is yeah, holding yeah. the entire grid. So he could be in there. I, 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 w- I wouldn't say he's dead. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I totally don't think he's dead. What I think happens at the end of the movie is that Kevin um, separated himself from his disc and gave it to Cora because he knew Cora would come out on the other side into the real world with his backup. And that winds up on uh, Sam Flynn's SIM card. And then Kevin sacrificed himself be. in on the grid that day and died along with Clue in order to kill Clue. Uh, I think that that's maybe. what happened. Maybe. Could so be. what I th- yeah, so what I what I'm suggesting is Kevin Flynn knew his backup could reproduce him, but that his original would have to die. Maybe. I, I think that that's what's suggested by the film. I don't know. I, I think it's up. I think it's a toss up. I think it could go either way the writers want it to go. Hmm. I, I'm not convinced that he actually died. But then, okay, back to my qual, uh, qualm with this. It's just that it kind of bothers me in the first place that uh, this is one of my dislikes. It's not a big deal. I buy into it, but it just doesn't make sense to me, really. Honestly, that the way that Kevin Flynn set it up many years ago, many cycles ago, um, was when he produced this program, Clue, um, with incredible ease, as they portray it in the film, um, the program Clue was a, mostly almost a complete carbon copy of the real deal. And in doing so, Kevin Flynn made him the most advanced program of them all, um, maybe even better than Tron himself. Well, I think he was. Obviously, he was able to get the better of Tron. Yeah, that's true. So the thing was, though, is that Clue could only be destroyed by Kevin, who had the wits to manipulate the code into destroying Clue. And not only that, but if he were trapped on the grid, in so doing, he would even kill himself. And I'm like, what? Wait a minute. Why? Why does he have to die again? He, well, okay, he, I, I why a- delete the, why delete Kevin Flynn in the source files when you have to delete Clue in the source files? There's no connection there. Right. I, no, I, 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 I it. took it a little differently. Like, like my interpretation of what Clue was as a program was that he was basically like a copy or came out of the actual Kevin Flynn so that he was like a copy of that version of that state of Kevin Flynn. And and they talk about reintegration, like reintegrating him back into Kevin. It was my impression. I could be completely wrong with this, that because it's a little nebulous. They don't explain it very well. But that was my impression of how that worked. And so that the, the idea that the, that reintegrating, like like you see that Kevin Flynn has some sort of control and power over uh, Clue in order even to to pull him back from 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 going up out through the portal with Sam and Cora, right? Yeah. And and the idea there is that he's reintegrating him back into himself. I don't know. That was what I took from it. Okay. And that and that, 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 that process. That actually makes a little bit more sense. Um, I never quite understood what they meant by reintegration. Right. Um, and it, it helps that you know a little bit more about code than I do. But it, well, no, so, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense from a coding perspective. This is all fantasy. Oh, okay. I'm just, I'm oh, just telling okay. you what I took from viewing it and my explanation of how I thought that was what they were trying to say. It is, okay. And I, I do agree, though, with the sentiment that I feel like the ending the, or, or that, that resolution may be the weakest link in the film. Yeah, it's, it's forced. 
it didn't it, seem necessary, except that it it tugs at the heartstrings when it's inevitable that Kevin must sacrifice himself. Yeah. Um. So it's like, okay, you found a great way to make a moving moment at the end of the film. We get it. But it seems contrived. It is the most contrived thing to me, even more so than creating a digital universe where human beings somehow get, you know, transmuted into digital space and bits uh, <laughs> right th- that i can buy frankly because it's kind of like well, well apart from that you don't even have a story but yeah. it didn't seem like it was necessary that they did this with kevin flynn's character to make a payoff in the end um okay right. another dislike i had and it, though again it's not a big deal it seems like everybody brings this up it's that when sam flynn uh is on top of income tower he oh, yes. leaps off the top of the building and this, this he is this free is free falls a, uh, this is from a physics standpoint this is an impossibility parachutes have to have time to slow you down you can't just parachute from anywhere you can't parachute off the top of your house there's not enough time you will break your you will break something because the parachute hasn't had time to get wind under itself and, and to, to start slowing you down you have to jump from great heights in order for parachute to work and even a building is not high enough yeah and it's, so it's, it's completely he, ludicrous. And when he gets low, then he releases his chute and very easily, you know, he conveniently winds up on getting wrapped up on a telephone pole and with practically no abrasions whatsoever. Yeah, it's crazy. Show, yeah, they show later that he has a couple of bruises, but yeah, it's crazy. He should have been a he should have been a splat on the side of the street. Yeah, absolutely. So. That yeah, that that's dumb. It really is dumb. And that that is hard to forgive because it happens in the quote unquote real world. Uh, you know, in the in that fantasy universe, but in the real world. So, um, I'm interested to know what you're trying to say here with point B in, on your dislikes in the show outline, Joe. Okay. I, I don't understand what you're saying here. Um, it seems like it's often overlooked. It's at a time between um, large, lengthy scenes during the movie when um, Sam Flynn and Kevin have their differences after Kevin has explained what all is going on the grid, and it, it's time for them to get some shut-eye. It's time for Kevin oh, I know where to, you're going with this. Yeah, to reflect on their situation and figure out what he should do next now that they only have a limited amount of time to get to the portal and to escape. I, I can, and Sam I can, is struggling with the same thing. I can right? fix this misunderstanding for you. Uh, okay, bear with me. So okay. Sam goes back to his bedroom. He complains with Cora. And then the very next thing you know, he goes and grabs um, Kevin Flynn's light cycle and he... Um, flees from his father to go find this guy named Zeus. He did? I, he, he grabbed Kevin Flynn's light cycle? You saw that? Because that's not in the film. Th- this well, is what the, was it? This is the understa- misunderstanding I want to fix for you. The, I'm going to take this dislike away from you because it's not a dislike. It shouldn't be a dislike. It didn't happen. Um, do you remember when in the light cycle battle when um, one, of the, one of the guys on Sam Flynn's team gets taken out? You, and and Sam also had rolled off of his light cycle, or and and he he was trying to save the guy, and he didn't get it to him in time. But he picked up the guy's light cycle bar and stuffed okay. it in his pant leg. You didn't remember okay. that? And, and and so he has an extra light cycle stuffed in his no, pant leg. No, no, TJ, I'm sorry, you're wrong. I'm not wrong. Yeah, yeah, well, no, you are right about those events, and actually, that would have made a lot of sense if that's what they tried to do with the film. But let's go back to the scene where Sam has the light cycle when he leaves Kevin. See, when he takes that light cycle and you see him uh, burning rubber down a long bridge and he goes up to the tower where Zeus is up at the top. Yes. He's in a 
completely different cycle from what they used during the gladiatorial competitions. He's enclosed. He has mm. a, he's got a windshield. He has a completely different dash. And when he offers it to a guy to take his coat off of the street to try bl- and blend in incognito, he tells a guy, Hey, here's your lucky day, you know, and gives him the light cycle and the guy leaves. Well, then it's reported through, um, clues crony who tells Clue, hey, Kevin Flynn's light cycle was found on the street, and we've uh, traced it back to its point of origin. And uh, I thought they said Sam Flynn's light cycle was traced. No, no, at that point, it's made abundantly clear. Another, th- another characteristic that gives it away that it's Kevin Flynn's light cycle is that it's a white cycle, and none of the cycles used during the gladiatorial games were white. What they- are you talking about? Sam's was, was white? No, he, no. He, he, yes, the the opposite team had orange, and he had white. No, no, no. I'm not talking about lights <laughs> on the cycle. I mean the actual cycle itself. Its metal alloy is like onyx metal, shiny. It's mm. very dark and smooth. Okay, I'm gonna and have then, to go watch it again now. Yeah. I, I'm not. I don't remember this at all. Okay. Yeah, it's very easy to overlook. Um, yeah, when I say white light, I'm not talking. To, yeah, uh, there, there is. All right, this colors. is this is the boring, nerdy, yeah. nitty gritty details is, that nobody yeah. cares about. <laughs> yeah, and this is something that I didn't notice the first ten times I watched it, and then one day it occurs to me the pro the problem it presents for the plot, which we haven't even addressed yet. Okay, uh, I'm sorry, people. Okay, here's the point. The point with all this is that Sam takes a light cycle and leaves his father at night. To go find Zeus. That light cycle, if it is his father's, was in his father's main living quarters. And if uh, you'll remember, the living quarters has where he meditates, it has a space to where they eat dinner, it has his personal library, and it has the main entrance into the living space. It also has Kevin's bed off to the side near the balcony. And so um, in between cutting scenes where you see Sam grumbling to Cora and not wanting to go to sleep that night and plotting that he's going to go find Zeus and then showing Cora in her bedroom, considering the ramifications of what Sam is plotting, it cuts back to show Kevin. And what is he doing? He has been the whole time just laying down on his bed and he's beginning to um, to like daydream about the old times he spent with Sam. And so they show one of his past memories of him on the beach with his son. Yeah. But the thing is the whole time Kevin has been right there in his living quarters where the light cycle was. And Sam somehow got the light cycle, left the building, drove away to to Zeus, practically gets to, to Zeus before Kevin is made aware of any of this when he, when he goes to go and find his son is missing. All right. I, I yeah. Whatever. Yeah. The fact that, the, you know, he just didn't notice his son took the, the bike out for a drive. That, that really bothers me. It's because not a big it, deal. It, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's like, it's not a big deal. You gotta yes. let it go, man. You gotta yeah, let no, it go. No, no. You're right. You know, I'm sorry. You're right. Okay. What, one of the things I want to talk about that's kind of a dislike is the namesake of this film is not in this film very much. And and, and I even <laughs> I even had that thought about the first film. Like Tron was in the film. Yeah, but he was not right. the focus of the film. And and Tron is not hardly in this film at all. In fact, he's known as um uh Rinsler, right? Is that Yes. Right. And because Tron the, because, Legacy, they call him Rinsler. 
Right, because uh, uh, Clue had ch- changed him into Rensler, but he was still Tron, and 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 it's a little. This is what I really dislike. It's a little nebulous as to why he started to remember when he did, and why he helped out as Tron when he did. Because what, you, because you really want him to. <laughs> you want him to, but what prompted that? What changed him? What was it? I mean, he. It, it, and why did it happen when it did? There was no. Because there was no audience, part of it. If there had yeah. been just anything, just any little prompting or motivation for that transformation to take place that would have been fine and frankly i wanted to see i wanted more of tron in the film my guess is that it would have been too expensive to digitally do him as well from a performance of uh bruce uh box oh yeah but bruce does play tron in this film and i am he does but we never see his if we do see his face it's not like close-ups and it's not a lot it's like from far away and with 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 the uh look of of a of a flashback that's kind of degraded and whatever and so it doesn't have you know you're right there are at least two very brief moments when you see tron without his helmet on and he does resemble alan bradley with a younger face it's just that yeah like you said they don't show it very well and they kind of show it in passing while kevin flynn is the attention you know and you know right the, the, the focus is on what clue is doing um yeah and tron is consistently an afterthought in both films it just happens <laughs> to be that he has the coolest name right so you have to name the movie after the coolest guy of all right I, I, it, the movie would not be fa- near as as cool to call it the grid or or clue or Kevin oh, Flynn yeah. or or yeah. you know F- Flynn's uh, Flynn's digital fantasy you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know our digital destiny yeah yeah I I, I do wish I mean because I wanted more of Tron I, bo- both in both films so it's a little frustrating and so that's a bit of a dislike so so those are really my two main things is Tron and uh, just the, the a little bit of lameness in in the ending in in the resolution of the film. Which, which you know, knocks it down just a little bit from from getting any five star rating from me. So, bottom line, Joe, do you recommend this film? I'm I'm having a hard time telling how you feel about this film. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me see here. To put it delicately, you know, for some people, some of the time it'll work, but not for all of the people all the time or none of the time. But you know, under certain circumstances, I think that this film works in certain circumstances. No, what? Um, this, <laughs> yeah, no, Tron Legacy, it's one of my personal favorites. Uh, it's a, it belongs to a subgenre of sci-fi, and if you don't care for that particular subgenre, yeah, then you may I, I'd not. I'd almost even call it more fantasy rather than sci-fi. Yeah, I can see that. Um, but yeah, if you're not crazy about um, this particular subgenre, you know, then it's, it's on the, it's on the low end of the, the, the the lineup for that subgenre in any case right yeah so i find it to be awesome i'm one of the followers i'm one of the cult followers and i can't say that about many fo- movies in general uh it just got to me you know i you're, don't like it all you're in the digital frontier you're in the grid yes i am so on the grid and okay. uh so on the one hand my my personal bias loves the film for all it is and <laughs> Um, dislikes aside, I, I thoroughly enjoy it and I recommend it to a lot of people, even when I know they'll probably not enjoy it as much as I do. Let yeah. me just, um, just so that to be said, you only gave it four stars. What's wrong and with you? To be honest, I'm only giving it four stars. And that is because while it is deeply moving, I do identify with a lot of the audience and the critics alike that 
not as much was done with the dialogue or the performances to make those stand out. Everything else that you see, cinematography, the sound, the 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 storyline, I feel really good about. But I don't think that there's much going for the performances, although they're not bad. They're not fantastic. They're not five-star worthy. Mm. And two, the dialogue, though it suits its purposes, it's never like, oh, wow, you remember that great line? Remember that great line? You know, it, no, there's, there's none of those. Come on. There's, come on. Bio-digital jazz, uh, man. Yeah, yeah, that one and you're messing with my zen thing, man. I, I like those two. You are two, but, really messing with my zen thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like those. But let's be honest, this, uh, this film also has other, um, you know, pieces of dialogue like, Out there is a new world. Out there is our destiny. You know, and it's like, yeah. oh, please. It's, I, but uh, I it's, took that as that's the pontificating a lot of, of a that, that was pontificating of a, of a uh, of the villain, though. That, that was no, okay. That didn't unfortunately, it's said twice. It's said near mm. the beginning of the film by Kevin, and then it's said later in the film by Clue, as though well, it was well, some well, 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 wonderful. See, that's line. actually that's what I liked is because it, it even demonstrates more my point of Clue really was practically a copy of Flynn from that time. Yes, it does. It does prove that point. We're supposed they to be should done have done, done with the conversation much more effectively <laughs> with a better line. Uh, all right. You will agree with me, TJ. No, no you will agree with me, Joe. Man, man um, you can be such a program sometimes. <laughs> all right. Well, so for me, uh, this film would be a five star if not. I mean, even in terms of performances, like I enjoyed the performances. And you're right. You know what? That I, I should mention that too. Is the, you're right. The dialogue is no. Joss Whedon-esque dialogue. It's just not to that level. I agree. So maybe that helps take it down just half a star for me as well. I'm giving it four and a half stars, particularly because the resolution with uh, Clue was a bit lackluster and a bit disappointing. Like, it's you feel like it's building up and then it's a bit of a letdown. But I did like the end of the film where, you know, obviously Cora is now out in the real world and she gets to see the sunrise. That's pretty yes. cool. So that kind of makes up for it a little bit. Yes, I, I will. So, oh, can we just say one more like, though? TJ, oh, I think that we're, this is this is essential to I think both of our stances. I think that this will explain us a lot, and people will understand that we're not entirely crazy. Um, good people of the internets. Um, the thing is, this is the thing. If you if you forget everything else, this film is mostly dramatic. It's very dramatic. And I mean, it's almost like operatic dramatic. Oh, sure. And yet it's dealing with everyday characters put in extraordinary situations. And while a lot of people might think that this is a great moment for the film to fall flat on its face with cliches, it's remarkable how there is nobody that criticizes this movie for being cliche. No, I, I didn't feel like it was cliched. Yes, and there's nobody who criticizes this movie for having ineffective drama. This movie excels at the dramatic, and even though you may not find it to be the most interesting, and though it may not be the most brilliant payoff with the villain in the end, you have to admit that the drama is there, and it's very good. It is really sweet. Yeah, I agree. And I love that, that drama. So, for what it is, it doesn't need to have great, big, beautiful Death Star explosions and awesome moments like, Luke, I'm your father. It, it, it works for where the drama is at. 
No, I agree. That's why it's so good. Which is why I was so frustrated by that uh, that general thing, uh, the general claim that Tron Legacy boasts dazzling visuals, but its human characters and story get lost amidst its state-of-the-art production design. I, I disagree with that so much. And I, I, uh, this was the first time I, I think that I've seen Olivia Wilde in any film. And I thought she was great. I thought, um, uh, Kevin Flynn was awesome again to, to see. So yeah, I'm, I'm giving this film four and a half stars. And I'll back that up with four stars out of five. Um, again, personal favorite, the, the biased in me wants to give it five, but I think that if I attempt to have an, out of body experience or take myself out of the equation as Cora would do, <laughs> then I would give it four for five to be right. fair. Well, Joe, I think it's time for us to take ourselves out of the equation. And tonight. That's the end game yep. over, buddy. This is the end of the line. All right. Yeah. End of line, man. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Folks might might be interested in following us on Twitter and Facebook and all the like. So where will people find you at? Well, they might not. But if you are, um, find me on Facebook. I'm Joseph Darnell. And uh, find me on Twitter. I'm Joseph Darnell. But you can call me Joe. And my personal site is jivingjackalope.com. Right. I am TJ Draper Pro on Twitter, Facebook.com slash TJ Draper on Facebook, BuzzingPixel.com, BuzzingPixelCreative.com, MovieByte.com. That's where you'll find all my stuff at. Uh, you can find the show notes for this episode at MovieByte.com slash MBPodcast slash 33. And uh, you'll find all the links to everything we talked about. You'll find links to IMDb profiles and Rotten Tomatoes and Box Office Mojo, all that good stuff in the show notes. Next week, we're going to be talking about Jack, the giant slayer. I'm looking forward to it. Hope I'm not disappointed. Joe's not looking forward to it. I hope he is impressed. There you go. End of line. <laughs>